Good morning, everyone. I just want to apologize from uh, the beginning that I have this very strange, like, ghost cough um, that manifests itself, especially when I'm talking. And so, <laughs> um, I just want to apologize for that. All right. Um, we have a long text. If you guys can turn to page four. We're continuing our series. Uh, we're going to look at Genesis 29, the whole of 29. And I'll read to you from verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, to, they said we know him. Jacob said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not yet time for the flocks, for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and a stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While Jacob was still speaking with them, Rachel came, from, came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the mouth's well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name, of the, el- the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold... It was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger 
before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and, we'll, and we will give you the other, one, the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to be his daughter Rachel, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is the word of God. All right, so this is a long story. And we're continuing our series. We're looking at the gospel and the life of Jacob. And Jacob is the third patriarch. And his story is just so full of interest, is it not, right? Because his longings, his desires, we so readily identify with. He's almost like a modern character. And today we come to the story um, of his marriage. Or maybe I should say marriages. And uh, before we look at the story, before we unpack the story, we need to know two things by way of background, okay? So these are the things. Number one, we need to know, we need to understand that Jacob comes from a chosen family. You see, the story actually starts all the way back with Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, through your family, I will save the world. And in every generation, there will be a chosen seed. And he will lead the family and he will carry on the line. And then the next generation, there will be another chosen seed. And on and on and on until one day, the seed the Messiah, the King of Kings, will be born, right? And so you need to know that Jacob comes from this chosen family. And the second thing you need to know is that Jacob comes from a family filled with suffering. You see, Jacob was the second of two sons. And his father, Isaac, loved the eldest son, Esau, but did not love Jacob. And this created all kinds of anguish and turmoil and just pain in Jacob's life. And therefore, we know the story, we looked at it several weeks ago, when Isaac was near death and he was blind, Jacob uh, remembered the prophecy of his birth, right? That the older shall serve the younger. And so he sneaks in, right? And he pretends to be Esau and he steals the firstborn blessing and this causes absolute devastation in the family and Jacob is forced to run for his life, right? And so these are the two things you need to know by way of background in order to understand the story. And so we're going to look at the story and unpack the details and then we're going to um, look at what is the story trying to teach us? What is the story, you know, trying to say to us? What's the meaning? All right, so first the story. Jacob has fled home and he has nothing. Everything has fallen apart. All his dreams have come to nothing. And he's running to Haran. Why? Because in Haran is his uncle Laban. 
And so he's journeying this 500 miles, and finally he arrives, and who does he meet? Rachel. And Rachel is the daughter of Laban, and it's love at first sight. He's just completely smitten with her. And you know, that's why we have this story of this huge stone over the well in this first two paragraphs. The narrator is at pain, goes at pains to explain that this stone was so huge that the shepherds would all wait around until there was enough guys to be able to lift this monstrosity. And the story tells us that when uh, Jacob saw Rachel, he was just so smitten, he just so wanted to impress her, that he, by himself, takes this stone and he lifts it all by himself, right? This Herculean task, because he's trying to impress her and he waters her flocks. And so this is how the story begins. And, you know, all the commentators say that this is what's called a, a classic betrothal scene. What does that mean? Well, very simply, this is your classic boy meets girl in the ancient world, right? And, you know, for the ancient readers, they would have immediately expected that the very next scene would have been the wedding. Because, you know, that's what happens, right? Hebrew boy meets girl at well. There's a connection. Wedding, Right? But there isn't a wedding because there's a problem. And what's the problem? The problem is that Jacob is penniless and he cannot afford to pay the bride price. You see, the bride price was a sum of money that you gave to the father in order to win her hand in marriage. And this is, by the way, why Laban is so excited to meet Jacob. Right? Because you see, several years ago, Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, sent a servant to Haran to look for a bride for Isaac. And do you guys remember, if you remember the story, what that servant had with him? He had ten camels laden with treasure and spices and gold. And the story tells us that Laban was there. And so Laban remembers, right? And Laban is saying, Laban hears, another young man from Abraham's family has come looking for a bride. And so he can't wait, right? He runs out and he's like looking for the camels. He's looking for the treasure. But it's not there. Something is terribly wrong and Jacob is penniless. And so this brings us to verse 15. Now this may not be obvious to you, but what's going on is a negotiation. You see, um, Laban has put Jacob to work for a month. And during that month, Laban notices, man, Jacob is a hard worker. This guy is a brilliant shepherd. And he realizes this is how he can solve the problem of the bride price. And so Laban says to Jacob, how much should I pay you? (coughs) How much should I pay you? And this sounds generous, right? Because he's saying, name your wages. But you see, Laban is so crafty. Because what he's saying to Jacob is, you make the first offer. And if you know anything about negotiation, you know that you should, do, you should never, never, never do two things. You should never, never, never reveal your greatest weakness. And you should never, never, never state how much something is really worth to you. Right? But Jacob breaks both those rules and he blurts out, I'll work seven years for Rachel. Now, to put that in context, you need to know that the typical going rate for a bride price was one and a half years of a man's wages. And so what Jacob has just offered is the unheard of sum of four times the going rate. And this is a huge mistake, and now Laban knows he's got, Rachel, he's got Jacob. Because in Laban, Jacob has met his match. You see, Jacob is a liar and a con artist, 
and so has Laban. But you see, Laban's been at it for far longer. And Laban says, realizes, this guy will do anything for Rachel. And at that moment, he decides to do two things. Number one, he decides that he can make a huge amount of money off of Jacob by underpaying him. And the second thing he resolves is he can solve the problem of Leah. What is the problem of Leah? You see, Laban has two daughters. The eldest was Leah and the youngest was Rachel. And this is very crucial. Look with me to verse 17. It's it's in the middle of the second to last paragraph. Look in verse 17. The whole story turns on this. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. What does that mean? Leah's eyes were weak. You see, the text is not telling us that Leah had very had poor eyesight, right? That she couldn't see very far. Because look at the comparison. It says, uh, Rebecca, Rachel was beautiful. What this story is telling us is that Leah had some kind of eye disorder, right? Some kind of misshapen eyes so that, you know, they were droopy or maybe she had lazy eyes or something. Whatever it was, it made her very unattractive. And the thing you need to know is that in Hebrew literature, right, it's not just that her eyes were bad and everything else is okay, but her eyes showed you the whole package. And so what this story is telling us is that Leah was ugly. Leah was ugly. And it says, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And, you know, to put it in, you know, modern speak, Rachel had a slamming bod. And she was just absolutely, right? Because of form. And she was absolutely gorgeous. And so... Laban had two daughters. One was an ugly duckling, and the other was just a beauty queen. And can you imagine both of these girls, they grew up together like this. And so here's the problem. Laban says to himself, I will never find a man willing to pay a bride price for my ugly daughter, Leah. Right? And so he says, I'm stuck with Leah. And this shows you just what kind of man he was. And he says, who is ever going to marry Leah? Now, some of you, let me pause at this moment and say, and let me say that some of you might say, I hate this about the Bible. You know, all of this about paying a bride price for women. It's just so sexist. It's just so degrading. Um, How primitive. And it's true. You know, we live in modern times. And can I just say that I'm so glad that we live in an era in which a woman's looks doesn't determine the whole shape of her life. You know, that who she can marry, what she can do, that we as a society, we look beyond appearances, right? We look at the heart. We look at the character. I hope you guys know I was being sarcastic. Are we, are we, are we any different? Just this past week uh, in Newsweek, there was an article called The Beauty Advantage, and it was looking at the role of women's looks in the workplace. And the conclusion out of the article, no big surprise, is that how a woman looks is incredibly important for, her, for getting a job and for getting promoted. And it quotes, the article quotes a corporate hiring manager, and here's what the hiring manager said, right? He said, a woman's looks is more important than her education. A woman's looks is more important than her education. This is what Newsweek tells us, right? So are we any better, right? We all know that a woman's looks is highly correlated to the wealth of her husband, 
right? How beautiful she is relates to how rich her husband is. And so are we any different? And do you think, therefore, that the Bible embraces this? Absolutely not. You see, the Bible shows us in a story form the devastation and just the evil and the tragedy of these men making these kind of decisions like this, right? And, it, and, and the same with polygamy. You know, a lot of you look at the story and say, oh, polygamy. But don't you see what the Bible is showing us? The tragedy, the, just the devastation that happens. All right. So let's go back to the story. Ray, uh, Jacob says, I'll work seven years. And uh, Laban replies in verse 19. He says, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Now, if that sounds strange to you in English, that's because it is. In the original Hebrew, Laban is being purposefully ambiguous. But Jacob, he's so in love, he hears what he wants to hear. And so he works for seven years, and then the most amazing statement, I think, in this entire story, it blows me away every time I read it, right? In verse 20, it says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Jacob worked seven long, grueling years, toiling in the sun every day, and he didn't even feel it because of the dream, the hope of Rachel. One day he'll have Rachel. All right, so finally, the long-awaited, <coughs> the long-awaited day arrives. And in verse 21, Jacob says, Give me my wife. And, uh, you know, just the way he says it, no niceties, it just shows you his intense desire, right? It's almost like the last hour of the last day, he punches out and he says, all right, give me Rachel. And, um, and so there's a wedding feast, and, you know, Jacob is just crazy happy, you know? He's thrilled because he's saying, finally, something is going right in my life. Finally, something to console me, to make up for all the pain and the tragedy of my life. And so Jacob is at this feast, and you know, he's drinking wine, and he gets a little tipsy, and then it's nightfall, and you know, uh, in a place with no electricity, nightfall is pitch dark, right? And so the bride comes in, they embrace, they go to bed together, they're married, and then I think the most dramatic twist in all of literature, verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Can you imagine, right? Can you imagine? Jacob wakes up, right? He leans over to kiss his, his newlywed bride. He's like, ah! Oh, right? <laughs> it's the older, hideous sister, Leah. It's funny, but it's tragic. Okay, it's tragic. And so, uh, Jacob goes to Laban and he says, Why have you deceived me? And Laban says, it is our custom that the eldest daughter should be married first. But he says, I tell you what, I tell you what, work another seven years and you can have Rachel as well. And Jacob says, okay, yes. And now because of these scheming men, now because of all this greed and the manipulation, Leah is thrown into the worst possible marriage imaginable. Right? Because not only does her husband not love her, in fact, the story tells her he hates her. He resents her. But you see, a lot of women have that, right? There's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of loveless marriages out there. But not only does he not love her, 
But the woman that he does love is in the marriage with her, and it is her younger sister, Rachel. And this is just a living hell for, for Leah. And we can see her agony and just incredible, profound sadness, right? In that last paragraph, right? Every time she has a son, she says, she, you can see her desperate hope. She says, now my husband will love me. Now my husband will care for me. But it never happens. But then something changes with the fourth son. Something incredibly wonderful. And we're going to take a look at that, right? And so, but that's the story. All right, so, um, what is this story trying to teach us? What is, uh, what is the lessons here? Now, I'm going to draw out um, five lessons, and we're going to go through them very quickly, okay? Number, lesson number one, this story shows us that sin always gives birth to more sin. Sin always creates more sin. If you look at the story, if you look at just the sordid mess of Jacob's life, do you notice something eerily familiar about it all, right? Uh, Jacob loves Rachel, but he does not love Leah, and this causes sibling rivalry and just tragedy. It's the same sin that Isaac committed with Esau and with Jacob, right? It's happening all over again. What Jacob does to Leah, Isaac did with him. And what does this tell us? Don't you see? It tells us that sin is never an isolated act. You can't just do sin and then that's it. With no consequences. Sin lives on and on and on. You see, sin is like this giant rock that you drop into a lake and shock waves destroy everything in its path. I mean, look... I mean, when you sin... Right, when you violate God's laws, I mean, do you think that um, God's laws are just these arbitrary rules? Absolutely not. God's laws are there for our flourishment, for our, for our harmony. And therefore, when you violate the laws, when you trample on people, it affects everyone around you and it never stops. Look at Jacob's life, right? Jacob, because he was not loved by his father, he latches on to Rachel and then he commits the exact same favoritism, if you know the story, with the next generation, right? With Rachel's son, Joseph, he loves more than the, any of the other, other sons. And this creates hatred, this creates rivalry, and it culminates in Joseph being sold into slavery. And it just devastates Jacob. And we could trace it all the way back to Isaac withholding his love from Jacob. Don't you see... It just doesn't, sin doesn't stop with you. It goes on and on forever, down through the generations. All right, so sin always gives birth to more sin. Lesson number two, this story shows us the way of God's discipline. What's really puzzling in this story is the way that Jacob so meekly accepts Laban's deception, right? Laban says, work another seven years and you can have Rachel. And we expect Jacob to say, what?! No way, absolutely not. You fraud, this is a cheat. Give me Rachel right now. And in fact, he is furious at first. But then something changes and he all of a sudden passively accepts. What's going on? It's one of the most fascinating dialogues in the entire story. Look with me to the end of verse 25. Jacob says to Laban, Why have you deceived me? And Laban responds in verse 25. He says, Around here, we don't put the younger ahead of the firstborn. Around here, we don't put the younger ahead of the firstborn. Wow. 
that word that Laban uses there is really unusual because the word firstborn refers to firstborn sons. And Laban uses it to refer to Leah, his daughter. Do you see what Laban is doing? You see, Laban is so crafty because he knows the moment he says it, it must have been like a dagger in Jacob's heart because Jacob at that moment realizes it's the same thing. It's the same sin that I committed against my father Isaac and my brother Esau. You see, my father, I deceived my father. And when he was blind, when he had to rely on his touch, I stole the most precious thing he had. And now Laban is doing the exact same thing to me. And um, there's this fascinating commentary by Robert Alter. Robert Alter is a Hebrew scholar, and he wrote a commentary in Genesis, and he imagines this conversation the morning after. And I want you to hear it because it's very illuminating. He imagines Jacob saying to Leah, I called out Rachel in the dark, and you answered. Why did you do that to me? And Leah responds, Your father called out Esau in the dark, and you answered. Why did you do that to him? Right? Ouch. And so, Jacob realizes that he is experiencing this very exact same sin and trauma that he had perpetrated against Isaac. And this shows us God's discipline. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute. I thought God forgives our sins. And that's true. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us, that God doesn't correct us, that God doesn't shape us, right? You see, this is very important that this is not punishment. That this is God showing his loving discipline. This is God showing Jacob how devastating sin is, the evil of it, to um, shape Jacob's character, to show Jacob that he cannot be this conniving, um, selfish brat that he would have stayed unless he knew, right? And this story shows us Jacob being humble. And this is why he accepts what Laban does to him. And now let's apply to some of you right now have a Laban in your life. Someone who's just tormenting you. And before you scream out with indignation, ask, what is it God is trying to teach me? What is it God is trying to tell me Is he trying to humble me? All right. I'm not saying that, you know, let yourself be exploited, but let that experience humble you. Okay. Number three. This story shows us the idolatry of love and romance and the disillusionment of it. You see, the Bible, I think, is the most realistic book in the world when it comes to love and romance. Right? Because in this story, we see... Jacob. And, he, and he's saying to himself, if I could just have Rachel, I'll be happy. You know, if I could just have Rachel, everything will, will be good in my life and it will make up for all the pain and the tragedy. And then, in the most, I, the most dramatic twist, it says, and behold, in the morning, it was Leah. And Tim Keller here has an incredible insight. And, you know, a lot of you know Tim Keller. He's the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he's been an incredible influence to me. He's shaped the way I read, I read the Bible. And uh, he, pre- he preached the sermon from this text, and I'm drawing a lot from that sermon. And this is what he says, and I want you to listen very carefully. Tim Keller says, Leah here represents something quite negative. And this is a picture of our cosmic disappointment when we look to romantic love or anything else for, for what only God can provide us. Do you hear that? 
In the morning, it's always Leia. We all experience this. Whatever it is we put our hope on, right? Whatever it is, our career, maybe it's getting married, maybe it's getting into a certain dream school, maybe it's a dream vacation that we've been saving up for. Whatever achievement, whatever it is we tell ourselves, if I have that, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content. In the morning, it's always Leia. Especially romantic love. You know, if there's anything this world tells us is the ultimate, right? Is it's the one to find the one, right? You guys know what I'm talking about—the one true love. And if you have her, if you have him, you know you'll be happy, you'll be content. And this world, you know, it just inundates us with this message, right? We see it in our songs, we see it in our magazines, in our movies, especially Disney animated movies, right? Right. One day, Prince Charming will come. One day we'll find the beautiful princess and everything will be well. We'll live happily ever after. But don't you see, that is a lie. That is a lie. Because no matter what you think is Rachel, it will always be Leah. You see, life is so full of cosmic disappointments and disillusionments. You know, reality always disappoints, disappoints us. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the bad experiences. I'm talking about the very best experiences. I'm talking about the very best marriages, the very best vacations. In the end, never seems to quite match our imaginations, the expectations of our imaginations. Why is that? You see, if there's nothing in this life that is ever Rachel, we must conclude that Rachel is beyond this world that we were made for something that this world simply cannot give us. And so that's the idolatry of love and romance. Now, the fourth point is the idolatry of family. You see, Jacob has made an idol of finding his one true love. But Leah has made an idol of family. And you can see that in the story, right? Um, Leah so desperately puts her hopes on, on her children. And she says... You know, because that's what her, the society tells her, right? You're nothing without children. And so Leah has son after son, and, and after every son, she says, this time my husband will love me. And you can see it in the names, right? Because the first son, Reuben, means to see. And she says, now maybe my, I won't be invisible to my husband. The second son, Simeon, means to hear. Now maybe my husband will listen to me. Levi means to be attached. Now maybe my husband will embrace me. Right? And so Leah has made an idol out of having the perfect family full of children, a tent of husband, you know, a nice home. It's the suburban dream life, right? But the Bible comes out against that. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, I thought the Bible was against sins, you know, like, you know, sleeping around and adultery. I thought the Bible was pro-family. I thought the Bible is, you know, uh, about traditional family values. You see, so many people misunderstand Christianity. The Bible is against all idolatry of putting anything ultimate instead of God. But some of you are saying, but isn't family, isn't having a family a good thing? Well, yes, but listen carefully, okay? Idolatry is not taking something evil and putting it at the center. Idolatry is taking something that is good and making that central in your life. You see, romantic love, that's a good thing. A loving husband, that's a good thing. Children, that's a good thing. But it's not the ultimate thing. 
And so, it's so hard to understand this. It's so hard for us to get this. And the only way Leah came to understand is through the incredibly painful experience of a husband who did not love her. You see, maybe with a better husband, Leah would have stayed in her delusion, but God gave her a very bad husband. And the bitterness of that experience pushed her to see something that that, that very few of us understand, right? Because Leah has son after, son after son, and she says, now maybe my husband will love me. But then notice in the fourth son, look at verse 35. It says, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. Notice there's no mention of her husband. And then the text says, she stopped having children, meaning she didn't need children anymore to be complete. And at that moment, Leah was free. Leah stopped looking to her father. She stopped looking to her husband. She stopped looking to her children. And she says, now I will praise the Lord. And that is what Judah means. Judah means praise. I will praise the Lord. Okay, that's the fourth point. The fifth point, and this is the last one, is God is attracted to the weak and to the, lo- and to the lowly. Look, let's look back to verse 31 at the top of the paragraph. The text tells us, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. You see, God saw that Leah was not loved, and then he loved her. And he gave her children. Now, are there children compensation? No. Okay? Here's the enormous, great mystery and the beauty of this story. You see, Leah has son after son, and each time she puts her hope on her husband, right? We've said this before, but this is very important. And then with the fourth son, she says, now I, will, now I will praise the Lord. And she names him Judah. And that is the gospel. That is how God shows her favor. Okay? Who is Judah? Who is this child? This is the most amazing thing in this entire story. Okay? Listen very carefully. Judah is the chosen seed. Judah is the one through whom one day a king will be born. And therefore, through Judah, Leah becomes the mother of Jesus. You see, Leah the ugly one, Leah the rejected one, becomes the one through whom God uses to save the world. Not beautiful Rachel, but ugly, rejected Leah. Doesn't that amaze you? That Jesus Christ chose to come into this world through Leah. And what does this tell us? This tells us the gospel, that God is attracted to the lowly, to the weak, to the unattractive, to the rejected. Why? Because you don't earn God's love. It's not because you're beautiful that God saves you. You are decidedly not beautiful because of your moral life. Yet God has mercy on you and he loves you. And don't you see that Leah was not loved by her husband, you know, She had a terrible husband, but God is showing Leah in this story that Jesus is the true bridegroom. That's what the book of Revelation calls Jesus. God is showing Leah that Jesus is the true husband she has been looking for all of her life. And so this is the gospel. Though you may look like Leah because of your sins, to Jesus you look like Rachel. And how does that happen? You see, Jesus Christ makes us beautiful by losing his beauty. That's what he did on the cross. He became disfigured. He became rejected. He lost his beauty 
So that as our substitute, as our Savior, He can make us beautiful. And so that when God looks at us, though we are marred by our sins, He sees in us an absolute beauty. The Bible tells us that God is ravished by our loveliness. There's this incredible passage in Zephaniah where it says that God sings over us, that He delights over us, that He sees in us this perfect, beautiful bride. And that's the gospel, that when God sees us, He sees an absolute beauty. Do you know that? Do you believe that? When, to the extent that you know this, you'll be free. So that if you're single, you won't be pinning all of your hopes that one day you'll find your one true love. One day you'll be married and you'll be complete because you see, your true and ultimate spouse is Jesus Christ. And some of you who are married, you know, maybe you're disappointed with your spouse. He or she is not what you thought they were going to be. But you won't, you're not going to become bitter. You know why? Because your true and ultimate spouse is Jesus Christ. And when you know that, when you drink deeply of that truth, you'll be free. And you'll be able to say with Leah, this time I will praise the Lord. That, by the way, is what Judah means. It means praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you all of our idolatries. That we make an idol out of marriage. We make an idol out of finding uh, our romantic ideal. But, oh Lord, in this story you show us, in just in your mercy to, to Leah, um, that you are the one we're looking for. You are the true and ultimate spouse. And that through the girl no one loved, and through a boy who was also unloved by his father, came Judah, the promised seed. And let that be just this stupendous truth in our hearts, echoing in our hearts, so that we don't cling to these other things. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.